This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Well, what happened? Suddenly, there is a break in the tension. What happens? On a warm, sunny afternoon, July 28th, 450 A.D. July 28th, 450 A.D. Emperor Theodosius decides to get on his horse and take an afternoon ride. Theodosius never comes back. He is thrown from his horse and is killed. Well, that changes everything when the emperor, the weak emperor, who is under the influence and the, the uh, power somewhat of Chrysapius, the strong advocate of Eutyches, when he's gone, everything now is wide open. Things are changing. Theodosius II is succeeded by his sister, Pulcheria, and her husband, uh, Marcion. I mean, she's really the one that succeeds, but uh, he, and he, he then takes over. But uh, at any rate, those two, Pulcheria <clears throat> continues to, to, to uh, exercise a significant influence in all of this. And it just so happens that Pulcheria and her husband, Marcion, don't like Eutyches. They like Leo I. And so the tide turns irreversibly. Chrysiphius, the senior advisor, is executed. One bad guy down. Eutyches is banished. Two down. And Flavian, by this time, who had been beaten to death by the minions of Dioscorus, his body is dug up and given an honorable burial. It's so interesting that throughout human history, what they do to dead bodies, they dig them up and burn the bones just to show how much they hate them. Or they'll dig them up and give them a decent burial. Uh, amazing stuff. Chrysiphius. You see how to spell that? Where is he? Chrysiphius. He is the senior political advisor to the emperor. And he is executed for having given bad advice. They banished him. He is, he is ousted from his monastery. 
So clearly, the tide has turned against Eutyches and in favor of principally Leo I. I'm coming to Dioscorus. Well, Leo advises the new empress and emperor to call another church council. And this time it is a ecumenical council. This is the fourth ecumenical council and it's called at Chalcedon. And it was an exceedingly large assembly. Somewhere around 600 bishops attended. And they assembled at, at Chalcedon or Chalcedon from October the 8th to November the 10th in the year 451. October the 8th to November the 10th in 451. Now, in effect, Dioscorus was on trial at the Council of Chalcedon. And it was a fairly rowdy event because emotions were running high, particularly when it concerned the matters relating to Dioscorus. And Dioscorus, when charges and accusations were being made against him, would try to stand up and defend himself to this body of 600 bishops. And again and again and again, the bishops cried out, Cast out the murderer! Cast out the murderer! Well, he was. He was banished as he was deposed and banished and then wanders off into obscurity. As far as I know, there were no criminal charges uh, filed against him. Further, after Dioscorus was dealt with, deposed and excommunicated, the council, the second council of Ephesus is annulled. Everything that it stood for, everything that it said is rejected. Flavius, uh, Flavian was declared to be an upholder of the Orthodox faith in all of this, the Council of Chalcedon. One little thing I forgot to mention a second is that Dioscorus, just before the council met, had the audacity to excommunicate Leo I, to try I should say, to excommunicate Leo I. I mean, this guy went down fighting. Uh, and he went down. I think we're all pleased to hear. And furthermore, Leo's tome was actually read and approved. The letter that didn't quite make it at Ephesus now makes it at Chalcedon. is read and approved. And remember, his tome was a ringing condemnation of Eutyches. And so his view, his tome is accepted. Joe, do you have a comment? He was, yes, deposed. 
Well, there were different kinds of banishment. Uh, uh, in his case, I, I don't know all the details. Uh, he just was forced to leave, I think, uh, his, his city. Uh, I don't know that there was any specific place he had to go to. Sometimes banishments did involve putting somebody off on a, in a particular locale. But in his case, I think it just simply meant he had to leave the city because he'd acted in such a, a bad way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Chalcedon actually tries to sort that out for us a little bit. One of the things that happens, and I'll just anticipate this, is what I was going to say, is that they go back and they look over the great councils. And even though, you know, the council with Cyril, even though he was very heavy-handed in the way he, he did things, he did articulate an essentially orthodox viewpoint. And so Chalcedon looks back and sort of reviews the history of church councils, and they talk about those that the church should affirm. Nicaea, Constantinople, uh, and of course, uh, their own. So, uh, it, it, it is very complicated. And, and I don't know how... I mean, I've said this before, but it, it's, it's a little disconcerting to look back and to see that profound theological decisions were made by people like this. You know, it, it is a little disconcerting. But all I have to do is look in the mirror. And I realize that, you know, I'm, I'm not all that great myself. And I've made, uh, you know, God uses wicked people to accomplish His purposes. And I think that when it comes down to some of the formulations that we adhere to presently, these older, these old councils, we simply have to trust. I mean, uh, that the Lord, through his, in His in His providence, employed wick, sometimes wicked men, sometimes stupid men, uh, to accomplish His purposes. And I think we're left with that. Well, the council, council. Well, that's not very good. Chalcedon and Christ. I didn't even bring my thing today. Chalcedon and Christ. One of the things that's characteristic of Chalcedon is there was a very serious effort to study and to be biblical uh, and arrive at a final statement with regard to the central issue, namely the two natures of Christ. They tried to decide, how do we talk about that? How do we, in light of what Nestorius has said, in light of what Eutyches has, has said, how, does the, how is the church going to talk about the divine and the human in Jesus? And Chalcedon does make a serious effort, uh, having once gotten rid of this, these bad guys, now to deal with this question. Uh, I think it's fair to say as well that at Chalcedon there's an attempt not simply to deal with this question of the two natures of Christ, but to establish orthodoxy. So Chalcedon is very self-conscious in its attempt to define, particularly in the area of Christology, 
what we the church believe. So this is an honorable attempt at Chalcedon. They again affirm Nicaea, Constantinople, and Ephesus as three ecumenical councils that are authoritative and binding on all Christians. Ephesus, Constantinople, and Nicaea are the three first three ecumenical councils. Now I'm going to take be patient with me now. I'm going to read extracts from Chalcedon or Chalcedon uh, on how they talked about the two natures of Christ. Are you with me? Okay. Referring to Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, complete as to His Godhead and complete as to His manhood. Now, do you see the balance here? And you're going to see this real strong balance all the way throughout. Complete as to His Godhead and complete as to His manhood. Truly God, truly man. Goes on. Consubstantial or homoousion. The same exact substance with the Father. As to His Godhead, uh, consubstantial with the Father as to His Godhead and consubstantial, homoousion, also with His manhood. The balance again. Like unto us in all things, yet without sin. As to His Godhead, begotten of the Father before, before all worlds. But as to His manhood, in these last days, born of the Virgin Mary, Theotokos, the mother of God, which is a slam against Nestorius. One and the same Christ, Son, only begotten, known in two natures. That's against Eutyches. And then he goes on, they go on to say, in two natures, without confusion, without conversion. This is a key phrase. This is one you might want to write down. In two natures, without confusion, without conversion, without severance, and without division. The two natures are without confusion, without conversion, without severance, and without division. Again, against Nestorius. The distinction of the natures being in no, in no way being abolished by their union but the peculiarity of each nature being maintained, concurring in one person. We confess not a son divided into two persons, but one and the same son. So what you see here is this very careful and deliberate balancing uh, one of the things that needs to be said is that the people at Chalcedon recognize that at the bottom there is a great mystery to how Jesus is fully God and fully man. So what they do is they try to describe the basic elements. He's fully God and He's fully man. He's got two natures, but it's in one person. Now, there is no presumption 
that this formulation, two natures, one person, exhausts or completely explains the person of Christ. But it does set parameters. This confession was ratified on October 25th, 451, at the sixth session of Chalcedon. And it was made into law by the emperor. One little tidbit. Well, I'm sorry, that's so... I'll have to get my... Canon 28, or Article 28. It's, it's known as the Canon 28. Leo, the great opponent of Eutyches, he supports Chalcedon. It was his idea in the first place that this council be called, finds himself unable to affirm Canon 28. He likes everything else, but not Canon 28. Why? Because Canon 28 stated that the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople was on a par with the patriarchal bishop of Rome. And so Leo I will not affirm Canon 28 because he does not believe that even the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople is on a par with him. So, Leo the first, Eutyches is out. Eutyches is gone. Leo, that's the ironic part. Here's the man who inspired this, who said, let's have a council. Let's, let's clean up the mess that was left by the second council of Ephesus. And uh, yet he finds himself uh, a little uh, out of sorts about this Canon 28. Okay, some key ideas about Chalcedon to just emphasize again. You remember at the beginning when I started talking about Christology? Well, Chalcedon essentially affirms those four major points that I gave you before. I'll repeat them again. Jesus is truly God. One. That's not, that, that's not these four here. I'm just summarizing in general. Christ is truly God. He is truly man. In one person. With two natures. So Chalcedon is the one who puts all of these together for the first time in a clear way. A couple of other ideas that I want to stress here a little bit, banking off of these four key points. There's a stress at Chalcedon of a real incarnation. There is a real incarnation. I say here, true incarnation. They want to go away from any kind of idea that God converted into a man, leaving behind his divinity, or that man somehow converted into God. Chalcedon wants to avoid that. Part of the reason I want to emphasize this, do you remember the story that I told you about my sitting in a Sunday school class some years back? And somebody asked, the Sunday school teacher said, who, who is Jesus? How do you talk about him? And everybody got everything wrong. 
Well, I don't want that to happen in your Sunday school classes. So think about these things a little bit carefully. So there's no conversion of God into man. We can say it this way. There is no humanizing of the divine nor any deification of the human. Man is not deified. That's not who Jesus is. Nor is he some humanized divinity. Neither is Christ someone in whom there is a temporary association between the divine and the human. All of those things, those ideas need to be avoided. Are you following me? But there is a true incarnation, a real union of the divine and the human in one personal life. Please don't ask me to explain how that is. But I think Chalcedon does a marvelous job at setting the clear boundaries of how we ought to think about the two natures of Christ without understanding it, but nevertheless stating the key ideas that are very, very important. A second point here, he is the God-man, fully God and fully man, but he is not two persons. We cannot make Jesus schizophrenic. I don't know how we avoid that logically, but I think we nevertheless must affirm that he is not two persons. He is one person, fully divine and fully human. Third point, again, two natures, divine and human, forever. Having taken on humanity, Chalcedon stresses that he will always have two natures. He is the God-man forever without confusion or conversion or separation or division. And finally, all of this is in one person. Two natures in one person. There is a hypostatical union. Let me write that, spell that for you. Hypostatical, H-Y-P-O-S- T-A-T-I-C-A-L Union H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C-A-L A Union of the Divine and the Human Well I hope by mentioning these things in brief that you understand that you cannot fully comprehend Christ a doctrinal statement, particularly one as useful and as important as Chalcedon, what it can do is basically set forth the basic biblical facts. The basic biblical facts are that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It can establish boundaries, basic parameters of how orthodox people think about Christ. This is true of any creed, any doctrinal statement. But also... I think this is very important to say about Chalcedon as well as any doctrinal statement. A doctrinal statement does not preclude further theological discussion. 
as important as Chalcedon is, and as important as it is for setting the boundaries, I think it would be a terrible mistake to stop thinking and discussing and studying on this question or any other major doctrinal question. I think we still have a Holy Spirit out there who works and renews and teaches. And so as important as doctrinal statements are, we can continue to learn and study on these very important questions. Preclude further theological discussion. Yes. I think I, I think that'd be a very dangerous thing. Uh, you know, that, that's it's always uh, complicated. Uh, I think that that uh, we have to believe that there is room for growth in our understanding of who Christ is. Uh, I think it's when we have the Holy Spirit, in part, is to continue in our growth. Now, I wouldn't be happy. I mean, in in going back and you know wanting to deny Chalcedon or anything like that, if if I were discussing these kind of things, I mean, I am a person who thinks that history is very very valuable for doing theology, and we need we need per- parameters in doing our, the, in our theological discussions. I think there's, to do right kind, the right kind of theologizing, you've got to do that within a context, within the context of the historic church. If a person knocks down all those boundaries, then you can go anywhere, and you can do all kinds of strange, weird things, and that's what modern theology often does. But I would say that particularly as conservative evangelical types, we want to do our theological discussion within boundaries. Now, there may be times when there's some tensions. My suspicion is, is that most of us have undergone some theological change in our own lives. And how we know how uncomfortable that can be, coming from one background and continuing to study and deciding that, well, I'm not quite that anymore, I'm really this. Uh, that can be a very traumatic experience. And I think any kind of, and so that means you might have to reject a doctrinal statement that you held in the past. If we can make this all personal. I think one should do that very, very cautiously. Uh, and, and I trust that it wouldn't lead us to repudiate uh, Chalcedon. I, I think, for example, I, I just don't, I, I think the boundaries are set wisely enough that there shouldn't be any kind of, of conclusion that would preclude that or deny that formulation. It may lead to, we may have refinements, further explanation, but still set within those pretty clear boundaries. It's very interesting that Calvin received some criticism uh, at one stage in his career because he did not deify uh, one of the early church councils. Uh, people are saying, what are you? I mean, he was accused of, 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 of Nestorianism, as, as I recall. Uh, he said, no, I'm not a Nestorian. But he was accused of that because he didn't feel like that he needed to somehow 
make these church councils and just put them in stone in an absolute way. I think Calvin did very much recognize their value as setting boundaries for us, and he accepted those boundaries. But at the same time, he wanted to have a little bit of, of distance that we're not that these are not on the par with Scripture. It's a, it's, it's a very delicate matter, and one perceive, must proceed, it seems to me, very, very cautiously and wisely. Well, I think there perhaps have been, you know, some. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I can't think of anything offhand. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know of any refinements. I think it's possible. Let me put it that way, to get more clarity about these things. It's possible. I don't know. I don't know offhand of any any clarifications that I know of. I mean, I still think Chalcedon is just fine, and that we ought to uh, let that let those parameters be established and continue to work within those. But I don't know of any refinements. I'm just I'm putting out the theoretical possibility that we can continue to think about these questions. This says, if you, if you can't read it, F, aftermath of Chalcedon. The aftermath. I'll be brief. Uh, Chalcedon, as you no doubt know, was by and large adopted by Christendom. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody did. There were a few who had problems. And so there were some... Uh, further eruptions about the person, the natures of Christ. In particular, in the areas of Palestine and Egypt, the decrees, the canons of Chalcedon were met with passionate opposition. Palestine and Egypt. The main opposition came from those who said that Christ had only one nature, a divine nature. And as a result, they were called monophysites. I'll spell that for you because I don't think it's readable. Mono, M-O-N-O, P-H-Y-S-I-T-E-S. Monophysites. Now, the Monophysites uh, are so-called because they believe in one nature. Uh, their main argument against Chalcedon was that two natures, to talk about Christ having two natures, logically leads them to two persons. And because they don't want to say Christ has two persons, they therefore reject the idea of two natures and conclude, therefore, that he has one nature. And they were called monophysites. There's one later development of this concerning the will of Christ. The monophysites asked, did Christ have both a divine will and a human will, or two wills? And if so, was one subordinate to the other? They asked some very complicated questions. And it wasn't until the Sixth Ecumenical Council in 681 A.D., the Sixth Ecumenical Council in 681 A.D., late 7th century, 
the decision was reached with regard to the two wills of Christ. Constantinople. 681. 681. And there it was declared that the two wills in Christ exist in perfect harmony. Perfect unity. It is a unity in which the human will of Christ is subject to the divine will. The two wills in Christ exist in perfect harmony, but the human will is subject to the divine will. That was a decision reached the Sixth Ecumenical Council, 681. Now, there was an effort uh, subsequent to Chalcedon to reconcile the different factions, the Chalcedonians and the Monophysites. In 482, a new emperor now, an emperor by the name of Zeno, Z-E-N-O, gets together and puts a compromise document out called the Hinatasan. H-E-N-O-T-I-C-O-N. And this compromise document was intended to resolve the differences between Chalcedon and the Monophysites. The problem is, is that it omitted the language of two natures. It basically opted in favor of the Monophysites. So the Monophysites liked it and the Chalcedonians did not. As a result, late 5th century, there is essentially a schism in the church. A schism in the church. Now scholars prefer to describe the differences between the Monophysites and the majority of the church who upheld Chalcedon, that division as a schism rather than a doctrinal deviation. Because what happened is the Monophysites in Palestine and in Egypt actually created another church and with its own priesthood and so and so forth so it really becomes a schism with doc, obviously on the basis of, of doctrinal differences but it's not like within Christendom there are just differences of, of opinion on, on theology it's it's more than that it's become a schism so scholars generally talk about a schismatic church the Monophysites late 5th century, late 5th, early 6th century. Now, the Monophysites still exist today, this separate church that broke off late 5th, early 6th century. You've heard of the Copts, the Coptic church in Egypt? They are Monophysites, one nature. There are also groups called the Jacobites in Syria. And they get their name from Jacob Baradeus, B-A-R-A-D-A-E-U-S. They're called Jacobites because he was a Monophysite teacher who went around Syria uh, advocating his ideas. And he's the one in particular who helped uh, create the Monophysite schismatic church. And then the Armenian Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church is also Monophysite. Turkey and Georgia, Iran, they still exist. 
uh, I think, and in, in, in Armenia is now a separate nation from the old Soviet Union, right? So monophysites still exist in those regions. There are clearly descetic tendencies in in that group. Uh, I don't know that they always clearly articulate those subtleties. They stress one nature, though, because they, they want to stress the divine. And yes, it logically leads them into a descetic-like view, inevitably. And of course, they want to deny that, but I think that... I mean, that's the, that's the rap against the monophysites from the Orthodox, Dave. That was a compromise. It was meant to sort of bring about a resolution of the conflict. But it, what it did is it avoided the two natures language in an effort to reach a compromise. But without the two natures language, the, Chal the Chalcedonians didn't like it and wouldn't sign it. You know, I don't know. Uh, I should look that up. I don't know. You got me. Christology. <laughs> it's gone through, obviously, uh, some changes and some difficult uh, times. A little bloodshed along the way. Uh, hard feelings and so forth. Anyway, we end up with Chalcedon as being what we consider the orthodox formulation of the natures of Christ. Okay, let's now move to a subject and a, and a person with whom we are far more familiar. I'm, I'm sorry, this is really creating problems. D, anthropology and soteriology and Augustine. We finished Christology. That's what I was. I was trying to bring you down gently. <laughs> well, you know, I know it's it's a little bit cumbersome to go through these 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 various controversies, uh, but I think it does illustrate the complexity of the problem and the fact that it took men and women a few hundred years to figure this out, to come to some sort of generally acceptable formulation. How do we talk about Christ? There was difficulty with regard to how do you define the canon and the trinity. I mean, these are all the first theological problems that we all, I mean, that the church had to deal with. And it did go through some turbulent, difficult times. Uh, Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and who can deny that these are, are are very difficult? I mean, I, when I look at these questions, and I, I'm always reminded about the limitations of the human mind. It's very complex, and 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 as I said to someone in the break, mystery has got to surround our understanding of these very profound questions. That's, that's on the first thing you need to say. There's mystery in all of this, and we can't reconcile 
all of this in a rational. We cannot put the Trinity under a microscope and hope to explain it in comprehensive detail. A finite mind cannot do that. And to, and to even suggest that we could is bad theology. Uh, I'm not sure that's a... Uh, you're probably talking about the, the, the sacraments there, perhaps. That argument by itself seems to me an invalid one to, to, to make against any theological formulation. When you're talking about the nature of... I mean, if you're going to have disagreements, you need to be a little more... That, that should be one of, the, one of the, the major arguments because, obviously, mystery... You can extend that to the sacraments. I mean, you've got to talk about mystery there. And if you if you do go back and look at the Reformation where those things kind of came out, both sides talk about mystery, I think. Could you help me to, to define the, the place of those Armenian church phrases? I mean, are they our brothers in Christ or they? Yeah. You know, I, I always hesitate to use the word heretic. I, I don't I don't like to do that. Okay. You know why? Let me tell you why. Okay. Uh, because if I were, <laughs> I, I I think that they are, are 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 terribly seriously mistaken. It is still nevertheless a fact that people, Christians, don't have everything figured out. Uh, for example. If, if, if I were to apply my understanding of, the, of, of salvation, a Reformed perspective of salvation, and were to apply that as a standard of orthodoxy, of whether somebody was a Christian or not a Christian, then I would exclude probably 80% of evangelicals. Because most evangelicals, as I understand them, don't have a reformed view of salvation. So I have to be very careful in in going out and saying these people are not Christians. I would I would say now this fo these people here, I don't know. Well, they would be considered heretics, generally speaking, to to to, to have a descetic kind of Christ. That's serious. That's that's a very serious problem, it seems to me. There's a lot at stake. If if God, if, if if there's no connection between us and Christ, if there was no true humanity. So if I found myself in Armenia, I'm not supposed to attend that Armenian church. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want. Yes. <laughs> well, you should have said that in the first place. I could give you the <laughs> no. Uh, I would say you want to help them try to clarify some of those questions. That's what I would say. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures, and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit, 
towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.